Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Hey, good morning again. This is hour two of Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Thank you so much for. Um, including me in your day today. I genuinely appreciate it. I know that your time is valuable. It's actually the most valuable resource you have. You can pretty much get more of anything um, except time. And so uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for um, sharing this time with me today. If you don't do anything else today for others who are listening, um, please pray. Please pray. Mary just... uh, Send a prayer request in on the text line. You can do so as well. It's always open, 877-933-2484. Mary says, please pray for me today. I'm new in my community. I uh, I need some help. Um, I've got a teen with special needs. I'm still getting to know people here, and I'm not feeling very good this morning, and I don't have a doctor yet. Self-employed, still establishing my business, have limited health insurance, etc. Just waiting to hear back from one friend here. So um, let's just do that right now. Father, we lift up Mary to you. We thank you that she's a part of um, our community of listeners, and we thank you so much um, for the gift of life, and we ask a restoration of her health. We ask that you would um, knit together a community for her where she now lives, that you would strengthen her business, um, that you would establish it, um, and that, Father, you would um, bring a network of people around Mary and um, and her son or daughter in order that they can thrive, that they can flourish where you have planted them. In Jesus' name, amen. How can I be praying for you today? You can always text me, 877-933-2484. Encourage you to be praying for others um, like you who are listening right now. Um, And um, invite us to be praying for you as well. Thank you for um, other comments on the text line this morning, resources that you're noting, things that you've seen over the weekend that you thought were great. Uh, Really, uh, uh, lots of folks apparently watched the latest episode of The Chosen. Um, somebody else saying uh, that they saw the whale. Don't see the whale. That was their um, commentary on that. So there you go. Um, a couple of headlines here this morning before we turn our attention to Mindy Bells and uh, dig in depth with her about uh, some things going on around the world. But a few international headlines um, that are hot this morning that you're going to want to know about. Um, there was an, uh, I will say, an uprising yesterday in um, in Brazil, the former Brazilian president, um, Bolsonaro, was uh, supportive of his supporters who stormed the nation's uh, Capitol building yesterday, the Congress, the Supreme Court, the presidential palace. It took a number of hours for the government to regain control through the military. Um, and, uh, you know, we're just going to recognize that there's been a transition there um, back to President uh, De Silva. Um Lula da Silva, um, who was inaugurated last week, and former President Bolsonaro um, has not uh, publicly conceded that election. And there are lots of folks uh, drawing parallels between what happened yesterday in Brazil and uh, the January 6th uh, 
insurrection um, two years ago here in the United States. So lots going on around the world. Russia ended its Christmas ceasefire, um, though firing uh, had actually not ceased um, over what was celebrated as Orthodox Christmas. And so we're going to have a conversation with Mindy about that. Um, Iran executed two men over the weekend in the latest um, of extrajudicial killings there. These are people who um, have been involved in demonstrations across the country, and they don't get fair trials by any stretch of the imagination, um, and they are executed in ways that are meant to send a message to others. And so I want to continue to be praying for what's happening um, there in Iran. Mindy Bells is going to join us next. You can follow what she is working on um, on Substack, mindybells.substack.com, where she takes us on a globe trot. So she's going to help us see into what's happening in Russia and Ukraine and also at our own southern border. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. Joining us now, Mindy Bells. You can follow her on Substack, mindybells.substack.com. You're going to find the Globetrot blog there. Mindy, welcome back. Hi, Carmen. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, All right. So many um, headlines related to the war um, that Russia has brought to Ukraine. So take us there. And um, if you would, suss out some of the religious issues in the midst of the war. Oof. Well, I think it's fair to say that from the beginning, the the war has been painted, uh, particularly by Moscow, in, in religious terms, and so we continue to see that playing out. Um, and one of the things that's become clear as as this war gets to its one year anniversary is that Russia has been targeting religious sites in Ukraine. There's, you know, a really significant history there because Ukraine and Russia share. Um, significant orthodox history um with and and kiev is is one of the leading sites of of russian orthodoxy and so it you know from the beginning russia had sought to sort of protect its right if you would um i think that would be questionable um to access to sites in kiev but but actually what it's done is is attacked religious sites and we began to see these reports of hundreds, an estimated 300 or more churches have been attacked. Um, but but more importantly, just a, 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 well, equally importantly, I would say, it's just a um, an attack on kind of, uh, you know, I think that this represents attack on an attack on the spirit of the people of Ukraine. And so we have seen church leaders dragged out of their churches and abused by Russian soldiers. This has been documented by the um, Ukrainian Institute on Religious Freedom. It's now being taken up by UNESCO. I mean, I think it's interesting to see the world interest in this topic, that Russia is specifically targeting religious sites and religious leaders in in its war in Ukraine, and that the world is responding by calling these war crimes and, and beginning to investigate them. And so a n- number of uh, le- EU countries signed on to a document calling these activities war crimes. A lot of that has emboldened Ukraine, along with fighting the war and continuing the intense on the ground battle that we've 
we've seen for months now. Um, President Zelensky has said, you know, we're just we're not going to allow our churches and our religious people to be cut down this way. And and they have begun, you know, actually um, uh, isolating and in some cases jailing uh, leaders and Russians who are setting up occupation in these churches and things like that. So so it's just sort of a, a sub another subset of how this war is being conducted. I think that we've watched Russia go go against the physical aspects of of targeting Ukrainian people by targeting the infrastructure, making just their physical lives difficult because they don't have electricity and water. And we've seen them go against the the mental, the, the mind play mind games, you know, by targeting residential areas and things like that. But the spiritual aspect is equally important because Ukraine, like Russia, is a majority a Christian country, and and I would say even more so because of the religious freedom that we've seen flourish there since the fall of communism, and um, this is something that Russia is attacking as the spiritual health of the nation. Hmm. Yeah, the numbers are pretty staggering. I mean, uh, UNESCO says as of November 2022, we're talking about 92 sacred sites that have been damaged, but Yale University. Um, has documented more than 500 religious sites. Um, some one-third of all cultural sites um, hit during the war have been uh, religious sites. And I think when we when we hear that um, and we just recognize, uh, you know, how majestic and beautiful these historic churches are, um, it's it's a little bit hard for us as uh, as Americans to imagine. Um, the sanctity of these sites, um, because our churches are, for the most part, not this old, not this historic, not this substantial. Um, and for many of us, our communities um, aren't centered on a particular church. The church is not at the center of the square of things where we live. But all of those things are true in these communities in Ukraine. It is the center of life, um, culturally and socially and in so many other ways. And so... Um, as we continue praying for the people of Ukraine in the midst of all of this, this is an aspect of that conversation. I think that uh, for Christians, is, it's easy for us to stir up our affection in this area um, because it's something easy for us to imagine. Mindy, will you help us turn our attention here in just a moment to our own southern border uh, here in the United States? Will do. All right. We're talking with Mindy Bells. We are looking at her Globetrot blog. You can find it at mindybells.substack.com. We're going to turn our attention to the southern border of the United States with Mexico. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Here we are now with the sky and the rain. We're 
All right. Um, we're all aware that the southern border of the United States has become a porous mess. And we also recognize that we're talking about precious people who are seeking a better life um, and trying to come to the United States uh, to have a better life. Mindy uh, Bells is with us now. You can follow her globetrot on Substack. Um, Mindy, talk with us about what is happening at the southern border. The president of the United States has finally made a trip there. Um, but resolution seems um, still an, an outside, um, wow, outside the realm of possibility. Yeah, I think that the the southern border is simply reflective of a larger immigration crisis. And what we keep having to pull pull back and be reminded of is that this crisis is a result of inaction, and that's primarily an action by Congress. The Congress for years now has not been able to agree on immigration reform that would actually legislate and empower government agencies to do the enforcement activities and the processing, legal processing of applicants. Absent that, the the executive, you know, we've seen this from Obama to Trump and, and, and now to Biden, have have tried to use the tools that are in, in their toolbox to restrict, to open, to process people at the border. And, and it's just, it's, it, it is, as you say, it is a mess. And the latest thing comes on, I mean, just an emblem of the mess is that what we've seen is, is during the, the height of the pandemic, President Trump at the time instituted something called Title 42 that's come to be called Title 42, which essentially restricted people from coming into the country on the basis of health concerns. It's simply because of the pandemic, we could not allow people in. We could not allow people to even lawfully apply for asylum as as they've been able to do in, in, in times past. Now, because that that rule um, was extended by Trump and then it was extended by Biden. Biden actually used it to continue to try to curb the population that was surging at the border. And not surprisingly, that has been challenged in court and it's now before the Supreme Court. And so Biden, in, in one sense, has been boxed in on this because he's got this major tool in his toolbox that's um, tied up in the Supreme Court. <laughs> and so he... he tried to i think make a step last week to to turn you know by by making sort of a two step order and it says on the one hand we will turn away cubans haitians and nicaraguans who just sh- show up at the border and try to enter illegally um on the other hand we're going to lawfully allow up to 30,000 in that case, who are able to apply, in other words, in the countries that they transit before they arrive at the U.S. border. And so in one sense, this is this potentially could deal with, these are the groups that represent the largest number of migrants showing up at the U.S. border right now. This is Venezuelans, Cubans, Haitians, and Nicaraguans. But we have many other groups showing up at the border. And what I think is a great concern that's been voiced by a number of, of Christian advocacy groups and immigration groups is that that we're not dealing in, in a judicial way with people who have legitimate needs for asylum and legitimate claims to immigrate. So, for instance, it, you know, family members, we've always recognized that there is um, family members have a reason to 
to cross the border into the United States and to join their family in the United States if they do so lawfully. What I and and so I was last year last week um, listening to someone from the Refugee Council, a longtime immigration lawyer who was in a meeting with the State Department. They've been trying to come up with ways to to fix some of these issues because, for instance, there is no way right now for Afghans of almost any type to get in to the United States, even including veterans of the Afghan war who fought alongside U.S. troops. We had provided legal pathways, but those have been subsequent, you know, shut down, shut down, shut down. We've seen the same thing with groups from the Middle East. We've talked about Middle East Christians and others. The same thing is happening with groups from Africa. So this rule does nothing to, um, address those. And it's going to take Congress to make a broader uh, reform. And, and it's just very hard after we've seen what happened in the House over the past week, very hard to see that this is going to be a Congress that's going to meaningfully engage and fund legitimate immigration reform. Um, math is not my strong suit. Everyone listening right now is now giggling. <laughs> um, but if what we're talking about um, is a pathway for 30,000 migrants per month from Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Venezuela. Um, 30,000 migrants per month from each of those countries or from those countries collectively. I think my, I have that question. And then um, the what, what about all of the people who have already left Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Venezuela before this announcement was made that now there's going to be this process for which they have to apply in their home country to be eligible. Um, and how, you know, how do we expect people who are already en route or already sitting there at the southern border from Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Venezuela, or the 106 other countries where people are from who are sitting yeah. at the southern border waiting to cross? Like, right, I just, I don't, I don't want to be a, like, I, I don't, I, I don't want to be a person who says, um, hey, you know, this. the president now has come forward with this policy proposal. Um, I don't want to be a person who's like, okay, that's not enough. But I'm looking at that and I'm like, uh, that's not enough. Right. It's a drop in the bucket. And and yes, I mean, it comes back to the, the ways in which I think structurally the president's hands are tied to some extent. And it's, uh, you know, uh, that that's a bipartisan problem. Um but I, I do, th I mean, it's also, it is, as you're highlighting, a really temporary fix. It's 30,000 people per month from the four nations, and it's for two years. And mm -hmm. and so it is, it, you know, basically just putting a thumb in the dike to try to process these people um, legally. That's a noble effort, but there are a lot of logistical problems with it. And you highlight those that what about people who have already arrived at the border? Can they go back to the countries they traverse through? And what we're talking about is they have to go back. They have to apply with the U.S. Embassy in those countries. And the U.S. Embassy has to be set up to process that. Mm -hmm. And that has been the bottleneck and the problem now for for years and years. And we saw it highlighted when we had this massive you know, crisis in Afghanistan. And the U.S. simply shut down processing Afghans who were trying to leave their country, who were in dire straits and continue to be in dire straits. And the U.S. wasn't equipped to process them. And so even those who legally had applications on file, some who legally qualified to be 
to gain admittance to the United States. They simply could not access the means for applying legally and, and the means for getting here. And so I think we're going to continue to see these sort of feeble attempts to make some change in the situation. But I think it's really important for us, we Americans sitting out here in our, our cities and towns to understand that this crisis isn't going to go away with these feeble steps. And that it is is really important to understand the complexities of it. You can't just reduce it to a border crisis. You can't just reduce it to a problem of people who don't deserve to be in the United States to be here. We have benefited as a country from our immigrant past, and and I believe that it is a key to our, our future. And so we have to find ways to orderly process and to be better equipped to to allow people in, and I think to eliminate the fear that surrounds this issue so much. Mm. Mindy, we're out of time, um, but there's so many other things that we could be talking with you about. So um, I will put the links in the show notes to um, articles about China and COVID that Mindy and I did not get to, but we are going to have a China conversation here in just a moment with Hannah Nation about uh, faithful disobedience and leaders in the church in China. And so we will uh, have an opportunity to talk about uh, China then. Mindy, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Carmen, great to be with you. You guys can find uh, Mindy Bells on her Substack, mindybells.substack.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge on the Faith Radio Network. We bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day. And so frequently we talk about China. Um, We talk about China from many different angles and perspectives and um, concerns. We talk about uh, the, the threats against Taiwan. We talk about what's happening in the South China Sea. We talk about the repression of the Uyghurs. Um, we talk about China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative across um, the Middle East and, uh, and Africa. Um, we talk about China as a rising threat in many, many ways. It's possible we don't talk often enough about Christians in China and what's happening in house churches in China, and who the leaders are, who our brothers and sisters in Christ are um, as Christians in China leading those house churches and the Chinese house church movement specifically. So we're going to talk with Hannah Nation again today. Um, We're going to talk specifically about her new book, Faithful Disobedience, Writings on Church and State from a Chinese House Church Movement. This is an insider story from Christians in China. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Hannah Nation is joining us. You can find her at hannahnation.com. She is going to take us into a book she has written and into the story um, that she is helping us see and understand, Faithful Disobedience, Writings on Church and State from a Chinese House Church Movement. Hannah, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, 
I think that uh, maybe let's dive in by having you take us into the Chinese house church movement. Um, and for Western listeners, um, like what is the experience of a Christian in a house church? Um, because that's different than a person who might be seeking to worship in an official, quote unquote, legal church that the Chinese government would recognize. Sure, yeah. Well, the house churches in China have existed um, since the 1950s when the communists came to power. And really what defines them is um, their unwillingness to enter into the state churches that were established um, in the 1950s and really their commitment to saying – that no earthly power can regulate the the church or uh, have authority over the church. But other than that, they're a very diverse group of churches. <laughs> you can find a lot of different commitments and persuasions across the house churches, but it's a very large number of Christians in China today. Um, conservative estimates are somewhere around 70 to 80 million Christians across China. Um, but um, many people will put that number much higher above a hundred million. So it's a very large group of people. And as you can imagine, um, when you have that many Christians, you have a lot of different, um, theological commitments or just a diversity of churches, but probably one of the most important thing to understand about the house churches is that even though they continue to call themselves house churches. They're not necessarily meeting in private homes. Um, They're not necessarily hiding. Um, Many, many house churches um, meet in rented spaces or um, even own um, or or kind of long-term rent um, commercial property. Um, and they want to be found. They they want to be available to their cities. Um, I, you know, you're you won't find them <laughs> advertising online or, you know, putting signs outside necessarily. But um, they they are accessible to people. They um, are not overly complicated for people to find because they want to serve their cities and they and they want to be present. This is a conversation about um, the way the church is expressing itself in a particular time through um, in and through the lives of particular people at the at the heart of all of this is a pastor, um, Wang Yi, hopefully I'm accurately pronouncing his name. Um, Introduce us to him. Yeah, um, so Wang Yi is a very notable figure um, in Chinese house church Christianity. Um, he was notable even before he became a Christian and before he became a pastor. Um, he has a very sharp mind, and he was more or less a, a pretty public intellectual um, before coming to faith. Um, he was trained as a legal scholar and taught at a university in Chengdu in southwest China, Um And really, he was a a pretty prominent human rights um, lawyer and advocate and wrote um, publicly online across China's internet and on various different prominent blogs. And yeah, so he was was very well known 
um, among China's intellectuals before he became a Christian. And then um, he became a Christian and uh, began pastoring right away and didn't stop writing. <laughs> he didn't set aside his um, his writing gifts when he came to faith and really has been a very prominent voice thinking through issues of how the house churches should relate to the government and how they should um, understand themselves. He's, he cares a lot about uh, the house churches understanding their own history and their own identity and um, being able to uh, see themselves as uh, the body of Christ in, in a historical way. Um, but he's probably most well-known in the Western world because in 2018, he was arrested. Um, this was not long after China's new religious regulations began to be implemented. And he was arrested and all of his church leadership along with him and um, roughly half of his congregation, which was large. There was at least uh, 500 people in his church early reign. And around half of them um, endured some form of a detainment or, or interference or harassment. Um, but it was a very well covered in the Western news. Uh, many people heard about this event. It was a very large um, just altercation, basically. And uh, part of also what made that so newsworthy was he wrote a declaration uh, uh, he called it my declaration of faithful disobedience. Um, he wrote it before his arrest and um, directed his leadership to release it if he was held for longer than 48 hours. And so it was released and it was translated into English and, and many, many people read it around the world. It's a very powerful statement and uh, many people know him from it. So let's go back in time because this is not the first time that he was arrested, 2018. So we're going to we're gonna go back in time and now we're going to go to the beginning of the book. The book is Faithful Disobedience, Writings on Church and State from a Chinese House Church Movement. Hannah Nation is the author. Um, take us to 2010 um, and an event that happened uh, on a global scale among evangelical Christians that many folks listening will recognize the origins of. Um, and would have never thought that it would have led to the arrest of of Christians around the world. Uh, yeah, so I believe you're probably talking about the Lausanne conference. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I'm not trying to be. <laughs> okay. I wasn't trying to be cryptic. Yeah. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure I understood which one you're referring to. Yeah. Um, so this was yeah a, a very significant event. Um, Basically, uh, Lausanne is, uh, for those who may not know, it's, it's um, a very important gathering of uh, evangelical Christian leaders across the world. And um, the first one took place in the 1970s. And uh, so this was the third one. It took place in um, South Africa. And um, they hoped that uh, house church leaders from China would be able to join and attend. And, and it looked as if that would be able to happen. Um, but essentially, right at the last minute, um, 
all of those leaders were prevented from leaving the country. Mm-hmm. Um, their their travel documents and their and their passports were were confiscated from them and and were held and um, they were were kept from attending Lausanne. Um, of course, this this was a you know a, a major event and uh, Lausanne kept uh, all of their their chairs their their sections in the congress empty it was a really powerful movement um to to demonstrate uh the missing um leadership from china um but wang yi did a lot of writing um following that and i i I would say that was a very powerful event for for really kind of um stoking this interest in helping the house churches understand their own identity and their own history. And um, a lot of the book, the whole first third is really focused on that topic, helping house churches understand why they're a house church, Mm -hmm. um, why historically their forefathers in the 1950s, people like Wang Wingdao and Watchman Nee, um, why they refused to enter the, the state church in the first place, um, and and this can be a very contentious topic within Chinese Christianity. Um, there are, are many people who feel like it would be better to let bygones be bygones and um, essentially move on from this debate. But uh, Wang Yi, and, and not only Wang Yi, but many other prominent house church pastors, uh, the book contains writings from other well-known names like um Jin Tianming in Beijing, um, they really kind of ask this question of does history matter, <laughs> you know, and and how does it matter for a church? Um, do the, the things that happened in the past continue to shape us and continue to shape our theology and our convictions? So good. We're going to continue our conversation with Hannah Nation in just a moment. I'm, I'm going to ask her, like, how does the faithful disobedience of these Chinese uh, Christians and particularly this house church movement, like how does it help us um, see ourselves and the temptations that we might be facing um, in terms of nationalism or totalitarianism or syncretism? Like, like, right? Like, how does this help us? Mm-hmm. How does reading what Christians halfway around the world um, are thinking and experiencing in China. How does it help us here in the United States? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Sign up for the free Bible in a Year reading plan at MyFaithRadio.com and get everything you need to follow the plan each day and stay on track, including a printed schedule. Sign up now at MyFaithRadio.com. Continuing our conversation with Hannah Nation, you can find her at hannahnation.com. You can also find her at housechurchtheology.com. We're talking with Hannah today about her new book, Faithful Disobedience, Writings on Church and State from a Chinese House Church Movement. She's the editor. Um, There are others engaged and involved in the writing as well. Um, Hannah, take us into really uh, sort of your thesis for this book, which is that um, the experience of these Chinese Christians really does have impl- implications for all of us everywhere. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I I think there's so much we can be learning from them. I mean, I think the really the main theme of uh, Wang Yi's writings and so many other pastors from China's writings, um, 
the main theme that they talk about and revisit over and over again is, you know, what is our ultimate love in life? Um, where is our, our highest loyalty and our, our highest allegiance? And, um, you know, obviously they want that <laughs> to be King Jesus in our lives. Um, and they want to remind us that, um, only he can, you know, fulfill us and only he can guide the church. And I think these are things that, um, we need to hear, we need to be reminded of, I think often China can feel very far away. It can feel very different. Um, and it, and it is different, you know, you can't minimize the cultural differences and the political differences at the same time. Um, one thing I like to remind people of is that, um, we have quite a lot in common with these pastors in our day-to-day lives. Um, you know, they write their sermons on laptops, <laughs> often in coffee shops. Um, they deal with all of the same pastoral issues that our pastors deal with. Um, they are concerned about the second generation, about their kids being raised in the faith. Um, they're probably their their biggest struggles in life are are not necessarily persecution, but materialism and um, just dealing with our technological world and, and all that it means. And so even though they feel very far away, um, we have a lot in common with them. And if we can read, um, you know, theologians and writers from the Reformation 500 years ago before, you know, the end of Christendom and before technology and the rise of, uh, capitalism, if we could read them and feel like we have things in common with them and things we can learn with them, uh, then we definitely have things in common with our Chinese brothers and sisters that we can learn from. And I I'm think so, right now, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm just so glad you you brought up like the people who wrote during the Reformation, because this is a little bit like reading um, reformers in real time. Mm, like they're mm-hmm. they're operating in a different place um, and so, you know, imagine that Christians in what would have been halfway around the world at the time had had opportunity to read what Martin Luther was writing in real time and how that might have influenced mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how much more quickly things might have taken root or developed in other places as well. So, you know, mm-hmm. you are bringing mm-hmm. us in real time what our Christian brothers and sisters are experiencing halfway around the world. And it should have um, bearing upon us in our in the way that we're praying for them and lifting them up and encouraging them, but also in expecting what's happening to them to happen to us. There is this expectation of suffering that exists among Chinese Christians that um, is actually really sobering and helpful for Western Christians to understand. Yeah, and they are so clear in reminding us that our call to walk with Christ. Um, is a call to participate in Christ's sufferings. Um, Wang Yi talks a lot about how the Christian call um, involves um, the life of the martyrs. <laughs> and that doesn't necessarily mean you will be martyred or he will be martyred. Um, but this is uh, the history and the life that we've been called to as a church. And we participate in these things. And I think that's hard for Americans. Americans don't like to think about suffering. <laughs> um, we're maybe a little allergic to thinking about suffering. Um, but I think 
the scripture is very clear that um, suffering is a part of life. We live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. And um, all of those who uh, walk with Christ can anticipate suffering. Um, I mean, that's all through the gospels, Paul and, you know, we were just in first Peter in my church yesterday morning and, and Peter's reminding us that um, we can anticipate suffering. And so there are real questions we have to ask ourselves of, you know, um, do we believe that um, Jesus is worth it? And um, I think our brothers and sisters in China can, can help us kind of recalibrate um, some of our discomfort and thinking about and talking about suffering because they so clearly say to us, yes, Jesus is worth it. And not only that, there's a lot of joy in following him. Um, one of the things that I love about Wang Yi's writings is that he's talking about very heavy things, but he's so delightful to read. Um, he's, he's very easy to read um, and he's, he's very thought provoking but also I think there's there's really a joy that comes through in his writings, a, a joy in Christ. And it's just deeply encouraging to be reminded um, that for many people, many brothers and sisters who have more intimate experiences with suffering, they can they can really say to us, it is worth it. Absolutely. Hannah, thank you so much for um, bringing us into proximity with our brothers and sisters in Christ in China and in the house church movement there. Um, you guys can connect with Hannah at her website, hannahnation.com. The book is Faithful Disobedience, Writings on Church and State from a Chinese House Church Movement. Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. Hannah asked a really good question um, in the midst of all of that. And the question is, is Jesus worth it? So let's pause there and ask that question. Is Jesus worth it? Your answer to that question depends on what you value. Worth implies value. So what's Jesus worth? What's the value of Knowing God, Jesus comes to exegete the Father. He takes on human flesh to dwell among us full of grace and truth, to show us the Father. What's the value of that to you? What's the value of knowing God? What's the value of having the offer of a restored relationship with the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit? What, what's the value of that to you? What's the value of being able to call God Abba, Father? What's the, what's the value um, of walking by faith in in an uncertain world what's the value of um being a person possessed of the holy spirit and operating in that spirit in the midst of a world that operates in quite the opposite spirit what's the value of all of that what's the value of the family of faith of the community of believers what's what's the value is god worth it is jesus worth it Good question. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, 
Click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.